Welcome back, podcast friends, to I Am Healthy and Fit. I Am Healthy and Fit is the affirmation that begins changing your health and fitness from the inside out. I'm Steve Jordan, your health and fitness coach. Welcome, Coach Theo. Theo DeSados, who was my high school football coach uh, from 1989 to 1993, dating myself there. Uh, we've reconnected over the past decade on Facebook, grateful for that because Coach Theo, you were and are still to this day one of the most extraordinary coaches, people that I've ever encountered. You made a big difference in my life professionally and personally. I use a lot of the uh, lessons that I learned from you when I was playing football for you, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for having you today on my podcast. Good. Great. Great to be here. Awesome. So we were just off the, just before we started recording and we started talking about marriage, uh, love and marriage. And I was telling you that uh, we were catching up that I've been married for three years. And you just told me that you just hit a magnificent milestone of being married for almost for 61 years. And I asked you, do you have any advice for a young lad who just got married to maintain a long, healthy relationship? (laughs) And you started to get into uh, a conversation. One, you said you were lucky and you were getting into the story about how you met your wife in college. And I wanted to pick up there because I think it's important for our audience to know who you are, where you came from, so that when we get into the more uh, the nuts and bolts of this conversation, they know that you're real because you have some extraordinary stories and tales and lessons to teach us all. Well, I'm 81 years old now, and when you, if you're lucky enough to live that long, you got a lot of stories. <laughs> and a lot of, of course, anyone has got stories. Everyone has their own, and everybody should have a book written about each one, each and every one person. Anyway, we were talking, and I mentioned that I went to Springfield College in Massachusetts. 1955, I was a freshman, and I met my wife, and she didn't want to go out with me because she thought I was too old. Now, you see, at that time, uh, we had uh, Korean War veterans back from, you know, in our college. Most of our guys in school were Korean War veterans. They had, were on the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. And the dress of the day was not college-type clothes. was all khakis. You know, it was Army issue, Marine issue, you know, uh, government issue clothes. But anyway, she thought I was too old. But to make a long story short, my wife is actually a year older than me. <laughs> I just looked older, but I was able to convince her later on to uh, go out with me, and the rest is history, of course. <laughs> so, what did you do to? How did you convince her? Well, <laughs> I guess it was my assertiveness. Okay. The thing that attracted me to my wife was that she was such a nice, nice person. Now, of course, through the year, you know, until that time, I met other girls that were just nice people. But my wife up in New England was was really nice. Oh, God, I couldn't believe how nice a person she was. And I just was attracted to that. And uh, I was a a slick New Yorker. You know, I was from New York at the time. And uh, originally from New York City, of course. And and I was considered a city slicker up there in Massachusetts. And uh, I guess it was... (laughs) The overwhelming uh, assertiveness of my New York City style, she couldn't resist. (laughs) That's that's awesome. What a great story. 
Well, you are no doubt assertive in so many ways, positive. Um, you, well, first of all, I want to I highlight Springfield College. I remember, uh, I mean, just in some of my sports history class or uh, studies in, in college, Springfield College has a lot of history in athletics. Um, they, I think they believe they created the first YMCA, right? Is that where the first YMCA was created? In the no, here's the thing. In the early 1980, well, in the late 1880s, 1890s, into the 1900s, it was called the YMCA College at Springfield, Massachusetts. Ah. And what they did was they developed men. It was all men's school. They developed men to be directors at local YMCA's. You see, each YMCA around the country is individually franchised. They're not collectively owned by one. And, but they have what they call a director, and those directors have to be trained. And what Springfield did at that time was they trained, you know, these men. And later, the school was called Springfield College. But at that time, it was called YMCA School at Springfield. Now, you know that Dr. Nate Smith invented basketball there. That you know, I guess that, you know. Yep, that's another great. Well, their original, their first football coach was Amos Alonzo Stagg, mm. which, of course, has a bowl game and for his name now. One of the division, the lower division bowl games is honoring him. He stopped coaching over the age of 100. He wow. coached for his son. He coached for his son, who was also a head coach. He was an assistant coach when he was over 100 years old. And uh, Amos Alonzo Stagg, of course, is a legend. And through the years, up until the Second World War, there were only three colleges in America that had a, a Bachelor of Science in physical, educa physical Education. One was Springfield College, which was all male, and then the other two were women's schools. One was Sargent College of Boston, Massachusetts, Boston, part of Boston University. And the other was Panzer College, which was a part of uh, Montclair State College in New Jersey. Okay. So, but later they, of course, everybody took, you know, girls, so on and so forth. When I went to Springfield, we had 60 girls, but today it's half and half or whatever, you know. Wow, that's interesting. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, a great experience. And, uh, you know, I played football there, of course, and baseball. And, uh, it was quite an experience. I got all kinds of stories I could tell you. Did you go to college for education, for sports, for both? Did you get there through Well, you sports? see, in those days, let me explain to you something. In those days, Springfield College cost $1,200 a year, okay? $1,200 a year. buy your books that included, room, that included everything. Room, board, tuition, the whole nine yards. 1200 bucks. okay? So during the summer, you'd make five or $600 working you know, a summer job. And basically it didn't cost, you know, it was peanuts to go to school. In those days it was nothing, you know, but we didn't have any scholarships. Nobody got a scholarship there in that school. Uh, but that's, it was so cheap, you know, but today, today it's, it's almost $40,000 a year, yeah. one year. I mean, it's crazy. Insane. It's crazy the cost. And the cost factor today is insane, you know, so but you, uh, I wanted to play professional baseball. That was my first love. Ah. And uh, I had no intention of going to college. And when I graduated from high school, I could have signed with the Cincinnati Reds. I would have played down at Winston-Salem, North Carolina for $45 a week. And it was only for about nine weeks. 
and I would lose all uh, uh, amateur status. You know, then if you went to college, you couldn't play anything. You couldn't play football. You couldn't do nothing because you would lose amateur status as a professional athlete. So my college coach convinced me not to do that. He said, go to college, play football, play baseball, and then you can always play baseball after that, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I went to college instead of signing that ridiculous contract for $45 a week. Man, nine weeks during the summer. It was a class D league. That was the rookie league. In those days, you may not be aware, but baseball had class D, C, B, A, double A, triple A, and major leagues. Wow. All those leagues. And in 1950, more youngsters were playing baseball in this country than to play today across the country. Mm-hmm. And in 1950, we only had 150 million people. Now we're over 300 million. So you can see how popular baseball was, you know. Yeah. But again, it was before TV and before other sports really come on the scene. Other sports came on the scene. Well, I think uh, Mike Trout might have changed that outlook of baseball after signing that big uh, new 10-year deal. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. How's that for money? Now, when I got out of college, when I got out of college, if I went with the New York Giants as a free agent, okay, guess what my salary would have been if I made the team? $1,500? No, no. It would have been $6,000. $6,000. Okay. When I got out of college, when I got out of college, I got a job teaching up in Plymouth, New Hampshire, as head football, head basketball coach. I got four thousand dollars for the year, one hundred dollars for football, and one hundred dollars for basketball. Hmm. Now, the Giants were practicing in Winooski Park, which was up in Vermont. Okay. If you go up there, if I go up there as a free agent, if you make the team, you're not going to find out if you make the team until September 6th. September 6th. Now, if I don't make the team, I am without a job. You can't get a teaching coaching job September 6th. It's all over. I was married and I had a little baby boy. Okay. So you know where I went. I went to the $4,000. I took the job. Mm. I couldn't gamble. That was going to make 6000 That was ridiculous. You know? It was not until like four years later when Namath, Joe Namath, signed a $400,000 contract with the New York Jets Mm. that uh, all salaries changed. Everything changed then. Coach, what position did you play in football? I was an offense and defensive tackle. Okay. I I played at at 230. Well, my maximum was 239. Wow. I was six foot one, 239. Great. And today, today, I would have, today, I would have, today I would have been a linebacker. Yep. What position in baseball? First base primarily. I also pitched and played some outfield. Awesome. So where did you decide to go down the path to be a coach and head coach for football, really follow that passion? Where in your – Well, what happened is, like I said, I got married my junior year in, in – uh, I got married my junior year in, in – I got October 1st. What a funny story. Let me tell you a funny story. During the football season, it's a Monday after practice. We're in the locker room. Visualize this. I tell my buddies in the locker room, taking a shower, I'm saying, I think I'm going to get married tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) They say, you're going to get married tomorrow? What are you, crazy? Okay. Well, tomorrow's Tuesday, the middle of the week. 
after football practice, my wife and I, we go to the Justice of the Peace at 7.30 at night, and we get married. That's when we got married, on a Tuesday, October 1st, 1957. Well, my father, when I told my father I was going to get married, he thought, oh, my God, he just shook his head. He thought it was going to be a shotgun wedding. (laughs) He thought, oh, my God, my son got the girl pregnant. Oh, my God. Well, that wasn't the case at all. My son, George, was not born until 14 months later, (laughs) December 28th, 1958. That's when he was born. But anyway, I got out of college. And like I said, all of a sudden, now I need money. So I, you know, I, I was lucky. I became a head coach right out of school, which was, a, I was the first head coach coming out of college in like 25, 30 years. But so I was very lucky. But in order to do that, I had to go up to New Hampshire, a very small town, Plymouth, New Hampshire. They were, they were going to discontinue the program, but, um, they gave it another shot, and I was able to save the program. First game, my coach, listen to this. We go up to Berlin, New Hampshire, right next to the Canadian border. Guess what the score was? Zero-zero tie. <laughs> is, that fun? is that funny or what? First, first, first game. But anyway, we, were, we only played seven games. We were 3-3-1, uh, we were three, three and one, and the next year we were 4-3, and three, so we had a winning season next year. But then I wanted to come back down to Long Island, where I graduated from high school, Mineola High School, after leaving New York City. Uh, we moved to Long Island in 1953, and I went finished up at Mineola High School. I wanted to come back there, and I couldn't get a head job. Uh, the competition was so keen, so I had to take a junior high school job. I became head football and head track coach at Lawrence Road Junior High School in Hempstead, Long Island, which was a part of the Uniondale school system. And football, we won three division titles in a row, and basket track, we did the same thing, three division titles in a row. So we were very successful. I had great kids, great players, great young men. I had one kid by the name of Michael J. Nardotti, who eventually we sent to West Point, who became the adjunct general of the United States of America Mm. for 17 years. He had over 150 lawyers in his command, a military lawyer. Quite a successful story. Incredible. But uh, anyway, the next year, after I spent three years there, I went up in 1964 season. I went to, uh, I moved up to the high school but the high school was only 10 years old, but they never had a winning season. So I moved up to the high school as the headline coach, offense and defense and kicking game coordinator. And I helped coach the first winning team there. We won the conference championship. We had, again, we had great players, great kids. And gives that we sent all the college all across the country. We had, uh, like I said, Michael went to West Point. We had another kid, Sam Wilson, went to Navy. We had another kid go to the Air Force Academy. We had a big tight end go to University of Minnesota. We had a one go to Amherst, uh, one go to Rutgers, one go to University of Wyoming. We had kids uh, all over the country. So were they, we had great players. Was this great just, players, Coach? Was this just luck, or was it? Were they drawn to well, you? Well, no. These were, these were just these were just kids we had, we happened to have in the school, you know. Uh-huh. And, of course, the, the coach when I went there was a guy by the name of Joe McGalley. He had played and was a, a great player at William & Mary College. 
and he let me he let me coach he let me do my thing and i was able to motivate and uh got these guys to uh perform because uh, that was the first winning team in uh, 10 years 10 years but anyway i only stayed there one year because i wanted to be a head coach and i moved over to sawanaga high school in 1965 that was in flora park long island and they had gone through 21 straight losing games 12 straight losing seasons I was the fifth coach in six years. <laughs> I was told by 19 fellow coaches in the county, don't take the job. It's ridiculously hard. Only four guys, four coaches said, take it. If anybody could do it, I could do it. And of course, they fed my ego. And that's what I wanted to hear. Awesome. So I went and I took the job. Now, the first year, we only won one game. That's all. We played in those days only eight games. We were one and seven. And uh, but anyway, we we had 50 players on the team and we ended with 50 players. And the next year we had the first winning season in 14 years. And we just went, went on a roll after that. In the 1970, we won the first championship, the South Shore Championship, the first championship in the school's history. The school started in 1929. So they went 41 years without a championship in football. And we did it in 1970. And again, there I was able to send kids all around the country play football. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I also coached there the last uh, five years. I coached baseball. I coached baseball. The baseball job opened and they gave that to me there. And I had a young man by the name of Tom Bianco. Tom Bianco was a super, super baseball player. He was a four-year varsity player for me. He batted cleanup. He um, was the, in the first round draft choice. He was the third pick in the 1971 draft, baseball draft by the Milwaukee Brewers. His bad luck was that he was picked by the Brewers, who were the best team in Major League Baseball at the time. And um, his competition was Robin Yant, the great Hall of Fame shortstop. Well, he wasn't going to move Robin Yant. And it was a shame because he really got buried in their system. But he was a great player. He, he was a switch hitter. As a ninth grader, he had a 423-foot home run. Oh, he was quite something. He was quite something. Uh, we had a real good baseball program. In 1970, the spring of 1970, we went up to the Bronx and we played in the James Monroe Invitational Baseball Tournament, which included the top 16 teams in metropolitan New York. And we were one of them. And we won. We won the in the finals. We beat Far Rockaway High School. Far Rockaway was the New York City champion. And we beat them. And uh, I had Bianco pitch that day. And here's how we won the game. 0-0 zero, zero is the score. Last inning, we're at bat. They don't want to pitch to Tommy, so they walk him. He steals second, steals third, comes home on a ground ball to second base, slides in safe at home. We win the game one nothing. How's that? Wow. Great players. Great players make coaches great. <laughs> yeah. You guys made me good. Yeah. Hey, you guys made me good. Don't That's, forget that. That is that is true, but there you have to have that synergy as a coach to know how to affect and influence your players 
to become great players because there's well, here's the, here's the thing. If you ever if you're ever in a position to talk to people, you may want to remember this this thought. Okay, I've been giving great credit. They said, "Coach, you're a great motivator." Okay, well, that's nice. That's nice to hear. But I always try to explain it. that's the the wrong word. The wrong word. If you're going to be a motivator, you have to be a communicator. Mm. Communication is the key. Terminology and perception, I write about it in my books. Terminology and perception, the words we use and the perception we give. Communication is the key. You've got to be able to communicate with your people. In any business, I learned that from Vince Lombardi. You, you learn that in any business. You know, Vince used to talk to business organizations all around the country. You know that, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, it was all about communication. It's all about communication. And it appears that it's motivation. Okay, it's motivation. Uh, it's all communication. You got to say the right words and you got to say it at the right time. Timing is very important also. And repetition, repetition of communication is necessary. It's like in athletics, we talk about reps, right? You need reps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people need reps. Did Michael Jordan at the end of practice only take two free throw practice shots or did he take it 100? Yeah. Took a hundred, if not more. You know, you got to get reps, and so it is in communication too. You you've got to have repetitions. Well, it's very but, interesting. Uh, that's it's very interesting that you bring this up, Coach, because uh, the title of this podcast, "I Am Healthy and Fit," is an incantation. It's a a mantra, if you will, to help people to believe it before they can achieve it, changing their language and their internal dialogue, because. What we say to ourselves is as equally important, if not more important, than what we say outwardly. And so if you can believe that you are healthy and fit, you can then become, in my 23 years of experience of helping to transform and change people's lives, there isn't one single person I was able to coach or affect that didn't believe that they could, could change and become what they wanted. Two words. Wanted. Two words. Yes. Two words, Steve. Mindset. That's right. Mindset. And I want to get your thought on this. Thing. It's in my books. It's in my books. Have you had a chance to read my books yet? I haven't, and I can't wait to get one and talk a little bit more about it right now. I'd love for you to share with the audience. Uh, we, we got I'm going to share you. with you, if you want, what do you want me to do? You want me to talk about the book or you want me to talk about, uh, finish the, what I was talking about? Yeah, before. finish about what you were talking about, and then we'll transition into the book because I okay, think. Okay, okay, okay. All right, so was that's one. And then I, I, I wanted to coach college football. I always wanted to coach college football. And in 1970, uh, 1970, I interviewed at Kane State College in, in, in New Jersey, and I was offered the job there. At the same time, I was offered the job at Plainfield High School. Well, there was a difference of $5,000. I couldn't sacrifice the $5,000 and go to Kane College. And the facilities were terrible. My coach's office, my office would have been in a closet. They had a grandstand that could accommodate about 500 people. I go to Plainfield. Plainfield's got a major stadium, can seat over 6,000. I got a, I got three large practice fields, unbelievable. Plus, I'm going to get five thousand dollars more. <laughs> so I go to Plainfield, obviously, right? So I went there in 1972, okay. Even though I had the job at Kane. Well, what happened is in 1976 the Kane job opened again. I interviewed again, and I didn't take it again for the same reason. 
1980, the job opened again, and I went for an interview again. But this time they said, no, thanks. <laughs> we offered to you twice. That's it. Forget about it. So I didn't get it. I was able to get it in 1980. I was able to take it because my wife had started a, a antiques and collectible business, a store. So we were making good money there, and I could afford the, the loss in salary between the public high school and the college, you know, because there was a loss in salary. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was at uh, at Plainfield. Plainfield had had a great program through the years, outstanding. Great players, the great Milt Campbell, the decathlon champion, was from Plainfield High. He was a great football player. And dozens of others, Vic Washington, Pete Lisk, guys that were in the NFL. Great, great programs. But they, the last four years, they had fall on bad times, all losing seasons. And in 1967 and 69, they went through race riots. Uh, so the town was really shot. And my, my, my responsibility was to try to use a football program to bring some positive force to the community, uh, try to regain some of the old reputation they had. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Okay. And anyway, so the first year, uh, we played nine games. We won one, one game. And I told our athletic director, the only reason why we won, we found a team that was more confused than we were. <laughs> uh, I could tell you funny stories. But anyway, I had to get rid of, well, I shouldn't say get rid of, that's the nice word. But I had to uh, release. We had trials for the team, you know, tryouts. And I had to get rid of some people who were question mark character people. Uh, in my book, I write about blue, green, and red people. Well, they were um, people that you don't want to have on your team. They're going to make you lose before you even play the game. So anyway, we had to find out who was who. And when we find out who was who, then we know who to play. But anyway, um, so that was the first year. The second year, we turned it around. We were four and five. We almost had a winning season. We didn't. After that, we went five and four. And then after that, we kept just winning. We had a, We became a state power. Mm-hmm. And in 1976, we were the first team to play in Giant Stadium, first high school team to play in Giant Stadium and win, beating Thomas Jefferson High School, now called Elizabeth High. My son George played fullback for us. And I give trivia. I said, the first player, the high school player to score a touchdown in the Giant Stadium was LeVon Prayer with a pass from Sam Curry, my quarterback. But who was the first white boy to score? <laughs> <laughs> the first white boy to score a touchdown was my son, George. And George goes into the Marine Corps, right? And when he's in the Marine Corps, he's trying to tell him that he scored a touchdown in Meadowlands. They won't believe him. He comes home. He says, Dad, I told him they won't believe me. They think I'm bull, throwing a bull. They won't believe me. We laugh like uh, they wouldn't believe him. He scored a touchdown in Meadowlands. But anyway, built a power there. And um, I was there eight years. And while I was there, I would have breakfast every morning in South Plainfield in this little luncheonette. And parents would come in from this local parochial school, St. Thomas Aquinas. And they were always that coach, you got to come over to our school and help us. We can't win a game, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I decided to give the uh, athletic director, not the athletic director, but the principal a call because he called me. And I returned his call and I go over for an interview. As a matter of courtesy, I find out that he can give me more money than I'm getting paid at the public school, which is unusual. Usually the parochial schools, they pay less. 
He says, I can do anything I want. <laughs> so they created the job as a driver education teacher. And they bought a car and they paid for the insurance and they gave me a ton of money. So I decided to go over there for a change. And while I went there, I was able to bring my son Theodore with me for his senior year. He had been at Plainfield High and I brought him over to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Later on, they called it Bishop R. High School. I but I brought my son as a senior and he helped us win the very first year. We went to the playoffs and uh, we built a powerhouse there for three years. Mm -hmm. I remember Bishop. But I had to get out of there. I, I had to leave because that was a parochial school and I had to get back into the public school retirement system. So I took a job at Sayreville High School. We had scrimmage Sayreville when I was a Bishop R and they had tremendous talent. Even though we beat them, they, they had tremendous talent. And I said, oh my God, you know, talent like that, we got to do something. Anyway, I go over there and I was there five years and we, we were not be able to build a powerhouse, but we were a, a real fine football program and uh, somebody to reckon with. And for example, in the five years I was there, we scored more points in the previous 10 years combined. And we had a great defense and uh, I sent some kids to college and the great players. Uh, had a great kid, uh, uh, Mike Bouchard, who went to, I sent him to Riverside City Community College in California and became a junior college All-American and he could have gone anywhere in the country and he, he ended up on scholarship at Rutgers. But he was a great player for me, a great kid. I still communicate with him on Facebook and telephone. Anyway, um, so I, and while I'm at uh, Sayreville, I'm in the weight room one day, and lo and behold, three administrators and alumnus from Rowway High School come into my weight room, and they want me to come to Rowway to rebuild their program. So I said, okay. Now, the reason why I went there was because Rowway played my old high school playing field, mm. the old school. They also played Union and Elizabeth powerhouses, okay? And we were a small school, Rowley. We were only a group two. That was a small. They were four, Division four schools. So I go to Rowley, and the first thing I do is I go into the guidance office. I'm going to check every boy's academics and see who's eligible for the, by state rules to play football. Lo and behold, instead of a group two, we're only a group one. That's how many kids I had eligible in the school that could be qualified to play football. So we're like a group one school playing group fours, my God. But anyway, we were able to have a winning program there. Uh, we didn't win any championship, but we had a winning team. And I stayed there for two years and I retired out of there from teaching after 31 years, okay? I retired from teaching. And they had a rule there that um, anybody on staff wanted the job, they could they could get it, you know, they could have it. So I had no problem with that. But I was only out of a job for three days, and uh, the athletic director at Johnson Regional, which was a nearby school, called me which is to rebuild their program. And yeah. that's that's where I met you. That's right. Okay? You remember Mr. Perigallo, right? Absolutely. Yes, your athletic director, great man, great man. Great man. And anyway, um, so I went there, and of course, uh, I had some great, great players that was very lucky again. <laughs> Vince Lombardi says players win. That's for sure. 
But uh, we had we had a great success. We went to the playoffs. We didn't win the championship, but we got to the playoffs, right? Yes, we did. You remember that? Okay. Yeah. Yes, we do. Our good friends from Brealey, right? Yeah. Good friends from Brealey. But anyway, we had to leave there because they closed up Brealey High School, and that whole staff came over to Johnson Regional. And we were bumped because we were adjunct coaches. You remember Coach Clint Jones and I. So what what happened then was um, left there and uh, the playing field job reopened again. Playing field job reopened again. So I had all kinds of alumni want me to come back. And we went back. I brought Coach Jones with me. The goal was to coach there for a little while, try to get back into a college and then uh, have Coach Jones take the, take over for me. We went there, and the same thing, we had to rebuild. You know, when you rebuild a program, uh, it's a whole new language players have to learn, and there's a learning curve that occurs. But by the third year, we were back in the playoffs. We lost in the finals to uh, Montclair, uh, had a great program. But we again, we had some great players. We had to develop them. And after three years, I left there and went to Jersey City State University as the defensive coordinator. Finally took a college job as an assistant. While I was there, I worked for six months. And then I went for my annual physical. And my blood was over 400. Hmm. And my doctor almost flipped out. He says, you're going to have a stroke. Holy cow, I got diabetes. I got sugar. I got diabetes, too. Well, I resigned from my job at Jersey City, and I spent the year uh, getting my blood down to normal so that I could live, you know. And that's what I did uh, for that year. How did you but do then, that? then uh, right Coach, after that, 1994. Real quickly, Coach, real quickly, how did you do that? How did you get your blood sugar down so low? Well, diet and medication. Okay. Diet and medication. Yeah. Okay. In 19, uh, then in 1994, I get a call from Ted Monica, the old coach at Madison Borough, who was now the athletic director. They had gone through a couple of hard seasons and he had a job open and he calls me in July. They still didn't fill their position. So I go up to see Ted, he was an old friend, and uh, he offers me the job. And I said, look, Ted, it's an hour and a half ride one way. I said, God, it's murder. He said, give me, give me one year. I want to retire after this year. Give me one year. I said, okay, okay, I'll give you one year. So I said, give me the roster. Give me the list of kids. I got to make contact with these kids. We got to have meetings. So he gives me the list of 22 players. I said, where's the rest of the names? He said, that's it. I said, you can't be serious. 22 names. I said, huh, how are we, we going to play? How we can't even practice against ourselves? We can't scrimmage 11 against 11. Honestly, God. So I had 22 plus eight freshmen, plus eight freshmen. And I had a great coaching staff. I had great assistant coaches. And I had some great players. I had one player that the school principal told me to cut before we even started because it was a real problem in the school. So I get a hold of the kid and I have a meeting with him and I find out that the kid is on medication, Ritalin, and he's not taking his medicine. Steve, did you hear what I said? I did. He's not taking his medicine. I said, young man, you're going to take your medicine in front of me every day. Mm. And if you don't, I'm going to take that medicine and shove it up your, you know what? <laughs> okay. And I said the word where I was, where I was going to shove it. Okay. So 
of course I wouldn't do that, but I, you know, you, you got to try to bluff once in a while. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the kid believed me. Right. And he brought his medicine every day and he was never a problem. He also ended up being an all state player for me. <laughs> Love it. But anyway, I was only there one year. We won the state championship. Here's what happened. After three games, we had won one game and lost two. Oh, by the way, I had two quarterbacks, a junior and a senior. I did not, they were, you know, who the hell am I going to select? That they were both equal, okay? So I altered them every play. Every play I altered them. They, they were the messenger. We're playing the first game of the season. My senior kid throws a touchdown pass. The next series, we get the ball. My junior throws a quick touchdown pass. <laughs> At the end of the game, the opposing coach says, what the hell am I supposed to do? He says, you got two quarterbacks throwing touchdowns. But anyway, we won the first game, but we lost the next two. And, of course, we're playing. Uh, we played uh, Caldwell. They got 70 guys on the sideline. I mean, it was they were loaded. But anyway, we were one and two. And uh, we had the guys down on their knees at the at the end of the game, you know, for last-minute instructions. And I called my manager over with his pad, and I said, give me your pad. So I wrote something down on the pad, and I said, who can guess what I wrote here? Of course, nobody could guess. And I read it off. I said, we are going to win the state championship. Who was the first to sign this beside me? And I signed it. Well, of course, everybody signed it. All the coaches signed it. And at the end... When I sent the players into the locker room, three reporters come up to me and they say, coach, how could you do that? How could you put yourself on the line like that? It'd be, it'd be so embarrassing. You know, they figure we're one and two, we're not gonna do anything, right? I says, tomorrow, one billion Chinese won't even know what happened. And I says, if it works, I'm a prophet, how's that? <laughs> and it worked, we won the state championship. How's that, how's that for, that's that story? It's gold setting. It's goal setting. Is that unbelievable. It's goal setting and putting the intention in play, right? You got to have an intention. You got to put it down. And everything was my everything was mindset. Yeah. Well, I knew we had kids. See, it was just a matter. See, the problem always was when you take over a program, even with you guys, you bring in a new system. It's new new vocabulary, new words. Yes. You know, a player's got to think. Now, when you play, you can't think. You got to know. I used to I used to give instruction. I would say, "What's your name?" Let me use it with you. Let me just say with you, what is your first name? Steve. Okay, you know it. But if I say, what is 10 times three divided by four multiplied by 1.35, you, 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 you got to think about it, right? Correct. You got to think you can't answer just like that. So in football, if I said to you, what is your assignment on the triple right? You're playing right guard. What is your assignment on the triple right? He'd have to say double and hard zero, no hard zero block number one. He'd have to know it that way. He can't think, see? but when you take over a program, they got to think. So that takes a little while. Now, I knew we had some players, and I figured, hey, as the season wore on, these guys are going to start remember. They're going to know, but they're going to know it cold, and we're going to do okay, you know? And that's, that's what happened in 94. But anyway, I was only there one year. And then uh, in, uh, in uh, 95, I was only there one year, 95. No, I'm sorry, 95 is 95 is when I went to the car at Jersey City. That's when I went to Jersey City. But anyway, in 96, uh, oh no, I, excuse, excuse me. That was in, let me think, I'm getting these years mixed up now. That was, 
that was, uh, Jesus Christ. I said 90, I told you so far about 94, right? Yeah, 94, I, I, 94, 96. you left, you left Clark. Oh, it was, I'm sorry, it was 1998 I went to Madison Borough, 1998. I met Madison Borough in 1998. One year there, and then in 1999, I went to Monroe Township, and I coached there two seasons. I, again, I was an adjunct coach. And uh, they did not, uh, they did not uh, renew my contract for the third year. Uh, when I was at a student, a graduate student at Kane University, I had a class and this guy would teach us these different uh, trust drills. Trust drills, I don't know if you ever heard of them. No, I haven't. But anyway, second year I'm at Monroe, we're building a program. And uh, I had one of my kids get thrown out of a game because he started he, he started to fight. Well, he responded. To, what, this other kid on the other team started fighting. He responded. See, so they both were thrown out of the game. So what I did in the off season in the weight room, I wanted to instill a trust drill that I had learned. And what it was, I had two players stand next to each other, player A and player B. Player B would slap player A in the face. Okay, and player A is not to react at all. Well, of course, the first reaction by anybody, I don't want anybody slapping me in the face. Of course not. But if you can take that, you can develop, you can develop a self-discipline to not let that bother you. Okay. So I had player A do that to player A and he gave him like a little left tap. So I says, no, don't do that. You got to slap him. So I slapped the kid in the face, right? <laughs> okay, no problem. They go through the drill and everything else. But while I'm doing that, the trainer is watching and the trainer didn't like me for different reasons that I don't want to mention right now. But anyway, he didn't care for me at all, okay? So anyway, here's what happens. This is like in February. In May, the baseball team is playing. The boy that got slapped in the face, the night that happened, he went home and he was mentioning that to his mother in the car and they both were laughing because they knew I had it. It was a trust drill, okay? No problem. But in May, the kid is playing a baseball game and the mother is watching the game. The trainer who was in that weight room at the time <laughs> is next to the boy's mother. And also present is a father of the quarterback that I demoted on our varsity football team. And when I demoted the quarterback, the father says he'll get me, okay? And he was in tight with the school board. No problem, those things happen. But anyway, so here's May and they have this three person meeting. And the trainer says to the boy's mother, do you know that coach slapped your son in the face? And she said later on, because she called me on the phone, she said later on, she said, yes, I know. We laughed about it in the car. It was, it was we were doing a trust drill, okay? So the boy's father that I demoted, the quarterback, he says, what did he do? And he finds out, and well, make a long story short, he goes to the principal, he tells the principal, the principal tells me, we have a meeting. He says, coach, you have to resign. We can't have you slapping kids in the face. I explained the trust drill. Makes no difference. Mr. DeBoer, the boy's father of the demoted quarterback, he's got too much pull with the school board. And I get a call from the school board, one of the school board members. He says, coach, I understand what you did. I support you. But the other eight did not. They supported the boy's father, mm. the boy I demoted the quarterback. So that they didn't renew my contract. No problem. No problem. 
my friend Dominic Bramante, who is now the head coach at the Riverside Indian School in Anadark, Oklahoma, calls me. Hey, I know, I know I just Coach got, Dom. I, I, what's that? I said I know Coach Dom for sure. He's okay. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So he says, I, I just got a job here at the Indian School because he's half Indian. He was half Indian, half Oto and half Italian. And anyway, he got the job. He says, I need you to come here and help me build this program. So I go out there as his line coach and defensive coordinator. And they had lost 51 games in a row, 51 games in a row. Well, we, the first game we played against another school from, from California. They came in all the way from California trip. And they had a good program. And we beat them and broke that record after 51 games. Can you imagine that? Hmm. But I was there one year with Dominic. It was a great year. The American Indian people were just super. I was the only uh, non-Indian on staff. I worked for the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Division of the Interior. That's where my check came from. And it was a great experience, great experience in Anadark, Oklahoma. But uh, anyway, then, then from there, I got a call by Kevin Guy, who was the head co coach of the New Jersey uh, Red Dogs, the arena team that played in Continental Arena. Well, they moved the team from from there to to Las Vegas, new owner and so on. And uh, so he took a job. He took a job in Huntsville, Alabama. And he called me. Uh, he's head coach of the Tennessee Valley Vipers in Huntsville, Alabama. He convinced me to come down to Alabama. He wanted to for me to introduce my positive mindset program. He was more interested in that in the, than in football. Okay, but I was going to be an assistant coach anyway. So I come down, and of course, that's what I did. I introduced the positive mindset program because he saw players on a professional level that really need a mental adjustment in terms of attitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the reason why he had me come down. And it was a great experience. I came down here to Huntsville in 2003, fell in love with the place, called my wife up. I said, put the house up for sale. We're getting the hell out of Jersey. I said, I just found heaven <laughs> in Alabama. And it's really beautiful. Huntsville is an international city here. The church I go to, we, we say the Lord's Prayer in about 12 different languages. Uh, we have people all around the world. You know, you're familiar with NASA's here, Redstone. An arsenal. It's, it's yeah. quite a quite a quite a city, but anyway, so we come down here, and the first year, 2003, we're 14 and 0, 14 and 0. We go up to Quad City, in Moline, Illinois, Quad City, Moline, Illinois, where John Deere Tractor is, and we play them. They had a good club, but everything that could go wrong went wrong, and we lost that game. We ended up um, 15 and 1 for the regular season. Went into the playoffs, won the first round, but we lost in the finals. And the next year, we had a winning season again. And the next year, 2005, new ownership took over, and uh, we left there and went to McAllen, Texas. McAllen, Texas, and coached the uh, Rio Grande Valley Dorados, right down at the, the border, of, right in Mexico, right next to Hidalgo, right there at the border. And that was a great year. We went to the playoffs, had a great team. But we did not win the playoffs. We lost in the finals. And uh, so then Kevin left there, and he went and took the head job at the San Diego, in San Jose, out in California. And I came home and stopped coaching after 40, 
five years. So during the Tennessee Valley Vipers were still in operation by a different owner, and they were doing very poorly. They fired their coach, and with six games left in the season, uh, the guy calls me up, and he tells me to come in and coach, and I finished up the season there the last six games. Uh, I had to pick up. I had to use their players, their coaches, their terminology, their system, their everything. And uh, we lost the first five. And the last game of the season, we played Birmingham Steel Dogs, which was our arch rival. And we beat them to win the game. And uh, so I got to renew my contract for the following year. And we went seven and nine. We missed the playoffs. But we beat Birmingham twice, our arch rival. And uh, how we were bopped out of the playoffs. We lost to the Iowa Barnstormers in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, on a quarterback return pass. Now, in the outdoor game where you played, you could use a quarterback return pass. But on the, uh, the, the arena game, you cannot. It was illegal. So they used it and scored a touchdown. And I'm screaming, going crazy. And the officials wouldn't listen to me. So we ended up losing the game because of that play. I come home, I get on the telephone on Monday, and I call the the main office in Chicago. And uh, they say, I'm sorry, coach. The, the umpire and the officials are learning, too, just like the coaches and the players, different rules. So we got skunked. We were 7-9. We were coming on at the end of the year. We got emaciated early part of the year with injuries. I had a kid from the University of Buffalo, Italian kid, a great defensive end, had five quarterback sacks in three games. Uh, he would have he was on route to break the record for the for the league. And I lost him with a hamstring pull and never got him back. I had another great play from the University of Houston. He got injured. My defensive backfield, I had two starters from the University of Notre Dame and one from North Carolina State. Now we had kids from all around the country. It was a great experience. I enjoyed it. Those had rules that you not like the outdoor game, you know. But anyway, so I was there one year, and then a new owner took over again. The new owners all the time because they lose money, and they use it as write-offs. And uh, he brought in his own guy, which is understandable. I got no problem. So I stopped coaching after 47 years, and that was it. Hmm. And that's it. Now I'm with you, big guy. I'm coaching with you. <laughs> I, I love it. This is uh, this is awesome, and I love that that timeline, the history there. It's it's a it's a. Well, let me just tell you one last story. Yeah. I was a rebuilder of programs, okay? The say. newspapers put me down, you know, the, the rebuilder, they said, right? Well, listen to this. I never realized what my destiny was. But when I was a senior in college at the end of my baseball season, they, the church, the church league, the church league, one of the church leagues had a baseball league. They had tryouts. They selected boys on, for eight teams. After the eight teams were selected, 15 boys were left and not selected. In other words, they were kids that were not very good. They had a draft, you know, they were not very good. So the coach comes up to me and asked me if I, oh, he knew I was going to be in town for the summer. He asked me if I would coach the team, make a ninth team. And I said, sure. So I start practicing. I see my kids. Oh my God, we're terrible. Okay. <laughs> we're terrible. Can't run, can't hit, can't feel. Anyway, so we play 16 game schedule. We're playing two, two or three times a week, right? What? Listen to this. We lose the first 14 games. Now, when we're losing, at the end of every game, I have my players go up to shake hands with the other team, right? 
lot of the kids on the other team, they wouldn't even shake my guy's hands. They're laughing at our guys. That's mm -hmm. how bad we were, okay? The mothers and fathers watching the game for the other team, they're harassing the umpires. They're beating, them, beating on the you know, balls and strikes. Terrible. My guys were never allowed to say a word to the umpires, okay? So anyway, after 14 games, our record is 0-14. The 15th game of the season, we play the teams that, that's in first place. Guess what happens? We beat them. Yeah. We beat them. You hear what I said, Steve? We beat them. Well, you want to see a negative reaction on their part. Oh, my God, they wouldn't shake my players' hands. The parents were going crazy. The next week, we played the team that was in second place that moved to first place because of the game that we won. We beat them. We end the season two wins, 14 losses. That, I didn't realize it. Didn't realize it. That was my destiny to be a rebuilder. Mm -hmm. That's why that's, I was at 17 different locations. And that's the theme that I, I picked up from that history and timeline. I'm sure a lot of listeners would. I mean, you go in and you, you revamp programs. I remember when you came to Clark, New Jersey, uh, Arthur L. Johnson Regional High School, there was a, a lot of uproar when you were coming in, and there was hesitation uh, to even have you come into the program because you had a very specific way of coaching, a very specific, you know, hard-nosed, tough love kind of way and you used to say we were soft and you helped us harden in a respectful uh you know you turned us boys into young men and had respect not just for each other but for ourselves how did that like stem like where did that come from who was your mentor was it well right right well listen i was i was born and raised in new york city up in harlem i was a white kid in the black community um uh, you know uh, I gotta tell you all kinds of stories there too. But point is, you had to, you know, I was uh, I was a street kid. You know, I was a street kid. Um, in fact, uh, when I first left New York City and went to Long Island, for example, um, how can I put this here? I'll say it here. No, in 1953, when I moved to Long Island, nobody nobody swore. Mm -hmm. Nobody used swear words. Well, when you're a kid in the city, we always, everybody swore. You know, it was just a part of the language, you know. Now today, everybody swears today. It's like a joke, you know. The comedian's joke. You know, years ago, a comedian would never say a swear word, you know. But today, it's ridiculous. But so I was a kid from New York. I come to Long Island. My God, and you know, I'm cursing like, like a true. They didn't know what to make of it. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know... I did the same thing when I went to college. When I went to college, nobody said a swear word right. except me. <laughs> when I was at Johnson Regional, I was in my golf cart one day, and I said an off-colored word. And one of the girl, I guess the girls' soccer or field hockey, whatever it was, they reported me to Mr. Paragallo. And I had a meeting with Paragallo and the principal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they said, Coach, you're a great coach and so on, but you, you got to watch your vocabulary. So Mr. Paragallo says, you know what he says to me? He says, A.T., move the golf, golf cart on the other side, away from the girls. <laughs> Do your swearing. <laughs> hey, listen, I forgot to mention in that, that all those schools I mentioned. In 2002, I went to Germany. I coached in Germany one year. Mm -hmm. I coached in Germany. I coached in Lubbock, Germany, in the GFL. I had six members of the German Army on my team, one SWAT member was on my team, 
and one 29-year-old doctor that was on my team. I only had one American player. I had a kid by the name of Jeremy Clements, who was an All-American quarterback at the University of West Georgia, Division II. He lost uh, in the finals to Valdosta State, Division II NCAA championship game. But he was an All-American quarterback. He was the only American I had. And we played, uh, you know, we played the uh, 10-game schedule. We ended up 5-5. Five and five. It was a great experience. Mm-hmm. And the German people were great. They were just super. I had great – my players, my line, about 295, 340, 320. I had monsters. Monsters. I had tremendous, tremendous athletes. I had two kids that I sent to the um, NFL Europe. I had the Philip Sturzberg, six foot five, 255 pounds, not an ounce of body fat. Defensive end for me. Uh, he went to play with Jack Bicknell in Berlin or in Barcelona. And uh, I had another kid by the name of Wyshynewski, uh, who was a running back receiver. Two guys played in the NFL Europe. I had great players, great, great kids. Now, a great story there. So, Coach, we're, I, I want to be respectful of time. Uh, typically, go about an hour for the, the podcast. I want to get into some more deep questions, um, and we can – All right, shoot. Yeah. The, the mindset. You talked about mindset, about, uh, you know, changing and transforming the programs – Tell us a little bit about mindset. How did you come about it? Where did you learn it? How do you practice yourself? Well, let me explain. Let me, let me explain to you something. I, when I wrote, the reason why I wrote the book was because players told me, they said, Coach, you got to write a book. got to write a book. Mm-hmm. Because, you see, what I did was I took different concepts, different ideas from different coaches. That's when I created the football Bible. Yes. When you played to me, did I give you a football Bible? I don't recall. Absolutely, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because that was pivotal in my, you know, in who I am today. As a okay. Man. Well, that football Bible is made up of sayings from different coaches, philosophers, writers, poets, you know, the whole nine yards. And so using, using that, using that. See, when I went to Rawway, when I went to Rawway, uh, I, I experimented with with team talks. I decided to get two players, and I gave them the football Bible, and I said, pick out your favorite sayings in the Bible, and I want you to explain them to the team in our team meeting Friday before game game day, and, you know, what it means to you. And I was amazed how great these kids were in expressing their favorite saying in the football Bible. I was just amazed, okay? Now, when I went with you guys, did I do the same thing? You did. Yes, and we had players, you know, that were just great. They were just great. So anyway, that's the reason why I wrote the book. And now, the the reason why uh, these things all came into play was is that everywhere I went, they thought they were going to lose. Not everywhere, because you guys didn't necessarily think going to lose. Uh, other schools didn't think. But places like Plainfield and Madison Borough and Bishop R and Broadway, they all thought they couldn't win. You know, they all had excuses. It was all excuses, you know. And so I came up with all this different system here to try to explain to them. And one of the major things when I give talks here or anywhere when I go give a talk, because I give talks to 
business organizations. I give talks to religious organizations, sports teams. And I talk about, the first thing I talk about is positive and negative force. And on a daily basis, if you watch TV, we are loaded, there's loaded with negative force, negative, negative stuff, minimal positive. We, we see rapes, robberies, stealing, fires, war, killing, murder, the whole nine yards. Once in a while, let's take in something which is good. Okay, a nice, nice story. So we're loaded with negative force that is surrounding us. And, uh, you know, the word can't, you know what the word can't means, right? Uh, I know what it means, but I'm not sure I know what it means in your... Can't means won't. Can't means won't. Okay. Can't means won't. Because if I said something to you and you said can't, and I said, how about if I give you a million dollars? You say, oh, well, that's different, coach. I can do it then. Yeah. <laughs> or at least you could try, right? right. You could try. But, but my point is, is that it's all in the mind. So the first thing I had to teach and I had to teach in myself was positive and negative force. Okay. And then positive and negative force led to average mindset and special mindset. Mm. And then the 90-10 rule, which I developed, okay? The 90-10 rule, 90% of the time, we as people, not necessarily me or you, but people in general will be thinking average mindset in generalities as compared to 10% of the time thinking special mindset. Okay. Now, we watch TV, we watch the news, and we see all this stuff about generalities. And we, for example, black and white. Black people do this. White people do this. Italians do this. Jews do this. No. If they said some white people do this, some black people do this, then they're correct. Because average mindset will just talk in generalities. Special mindset talks in specifics. For example, some. They add the word some. Now you're correct. There's the difference. That goes back to communication, terminology, and perception using the wrong words or not using the right, the right words. So that's what you have. Positive force, negative force. Coach, what's the name of you your book? The name of the book is Positive Mindset, Special Mindset. And you can buy that on Amazon? Oh, it's all over the internet. You can buy it in foreign countries and everywhere. Okay, awesome. I get a royalty check every four months. It's not very big, but it's a good check. <laughs> all right. So... I have some questions from players that uh, I played with and you coached um, that they had. And we wanted to uh, address some of these. How has athletics changed over the past 50 years that you've seen in your experience? Well, to be honest with you, you, you I, I listen to ESPN all the time because that's what else, either that or music. But um, they talk about, you know, this changes and I change this changes. I don't know so much if it's changed. If they, well, of course, some of the rules have changed in different sports and so on. We know that. That's common sense. The fields have changed. Equipment has changed. We know, we know about those changes. But as far as change, I, I, I really truly believe that the players basically are the same. The adults are different. It's when they become an adult that they're different. Mm. They say the kids are different. I don't think the kids are different. I think the adults are different. The adults buy into different, different, they're influenced. You know, there's a guy, Dr. I don't know if Dr. Robert Epstein, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's got a great, several books, but he's got a great book out there. The last 60 months, 60 years, he's been studying the effect of the media on the mindset of people. 
This is why today we have the mindset that we have when you watch what's going on, where we want to move to socialism by some people. Uh, this has been going on for 60 years. Now, you know, in 1920, the Communist Party, their plan was in order to change our mindset, they had to get into the schools and colleges. Mm -hmm. Do you think they've succeeded? No. They thought it was going to be a long process. It wasn't going to be overnight. And it was a long process. And today they're loaded in the colleges and universities and many of our schools. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is a mindset. This, this is Dr. Epstein. Okay, great book. But anyway, the point is, is that the adults maybe are different. Okay. They've allowed themselves to become different. The kids, when they start off, they're only kids. Hey, when the kid is 15, 16 years old, I mean, he's still a kid. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have all those worldly experiences. He can be influenced. I find out that they still want discipline. They still want discipline. They admire discipline. They admire it. Okay. They got to be sold, not told. That's a key concept that I have in my books. You have to sell and not tell. Now, Steve, as teachers and coaches, what do we normally do? We stand up in front of a room and we lecture, right? Yes. I'm lecturing to you now. I'm talking. I'm not selling. I'm lecturing, okay? But how you sell, this is how you sell. You give information in your business, in, your, in your, what you're doing right now. You give information and then you must ask a question because then you use the concept of two ears and one mouth. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Must be you should listen twice as much as you speak. Now, you ask a question of, of the information you just told the person. They got to give you feedback. Do they change the words? Do they give you total different meaning? You find out whether they heard you or they didn't hear you. Did it go in one ear and out the other? Okay. You have to do that with your players. And that's what I would do with my players. I would give them a blocking rule. What did I say? And they would hesitate and I would say, wrong. What do you mean? You didn't give me a chance. You're wrong. You got to know it. You got to know it. You got to know it. If I said to you, what's your name? And you hesitate, I would say, wrong. You got to know your name. Mm -hmm. And when you sell somebody somebody, you got to give information and then ask a question and see if they heard you. And then ask them, well, why do that? And see what their answer is. And if you don't like their answer, you ask them why about that answer. You keep asking why until you can get the person to be on the same page that you are on. Mm -hmm. Now you've sold the person. Because here's the key, Steve. Once you sell somebody something, they own it. I learned that from Vince Lombardi. Let me tell you a quick story about Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi and I had lunch together with 10 other guys back in the 60s at the National Football Convention in Atlantic City. I was sitting at a table and his people just sat down where I was sitting. I had an empty table. I was so happy. Oh my God, Vince Lombardi. I was a young coach, right? But one of the things he said, he had an assistant coach who would give him suggestions he never used as a high school coach up in Englewood Cliffs. Remember he coached there and he never did what the high school coach, the assistant coach recommended. So finally one day, one game he did and it didn't work. He was going to blame the coach, but then he said it wasn't the coach's fault. It was his fault because he took the coach's suggestion. So he said to us coaches sitting at the table, he said, gentlemen, you want to sell, don't tell. Tell your assistant coaches and sell them that they have to sell you 
Because if they sell you, you're going to use it. And it becomes yours. If it works, you give them credit. If it doesn't work, you take the hit. Mm. You take the hit. And I used to teach that to my, my staff, my coaching staff. Give me suggestions. Sell me. Don't tell me. If we use it and it works, you're going to get the credit. And if it doesn't, I have to take the hit because that's my job. And that's, that's how you have to do it in this positive mindset program. You it. work with people. Now, how does somebody do it on their own? Would you ask yourself for a question? So if somebody's listening. Well, no, in the book. It's in the book. In the back. It's in the back. It's in the back in the book. I have a last chapter in the book there if you want to do it yourself, how you should start it off. Okay. And if you want to do anything, all you got to do is get on the telephone call and just buzz me anytime you want. Awesome. Well, I definitely am uh, I'm very appreciative of this conversation. There's one last question that I have, and it's the origin of the scarlet hands. Uh, it's all right. Let me give it to you. Yeah. I'm at Sawanaga High School on Long Island, and uh, the, the um, Michigan State Spartans played uh, against Notre Dame, and Michigan State defensive guys wore green berets, the Spartan color. So I saw that idea, and I was at Swanigan High School. We were 65% Italian. Uh, I decided to use red because I like the color red. I like the color scarlet, blood. It also was like blood. And 65% um, Italian, so I was going to call it the black hand. <laughs> but I said, I better not do that. That's the mafia, right? So I decided to call it the scarlet hand, all right? And that's what we did, the scarlet hand. And they would, they would get, they would win it, and then they could lose it. Yep. And through the years, I've had players lose the beret, and of course that incited the riot in terms of their play, and they were victorious to win it back the next week. Yeah. You know that type of thing. Oh well, yeah, I had players to coach. The worst thing ever happened. You took that beret away, but I got it back next week. Well, I was uh, very fortunate to play at a level where you were able to honor me that with that, and I still, I still have it. I actually have it in my house in New Jersey, where my family still lives. And good, uh, good. You my, realize this? That there were there were games that I had one guy stand up on a hash mark, only one guy with a beret on, yeah. and then I had other games where I had twenty guys. You know, it was really, it was really something that played for you that played with me when anybody who had that honors that still to this day. And it is something that's something very, very special that I know that has impacted all of our lives as you have uh, for being an extraordinary coach, an extraordinary human being, a person who's committed to change. Uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart personally for being you being the best coach that I've ever had. I, I, really truly mean it that I am who I am today a big part of who I am because I played for you and I'm grateful that I had that opportunity and I'm going to speak on behalf of all the other players that played for Arthur L. Johnson Regional High School in Clark New Jersey under your coaching we appreciated you and do to this day um, uh, Eric Mores, Dave Bierstein, Danny Radziniak, Jake Duran uh, these are guys I still keep in touch with my best friends Justin LaSala people that are Mike Mensel honor you and, and honor that. Just, just, re, ju, just remember this. Our creator put me in front of you. Our creator put you in front of me. Yes. And as I write in my book, it must be for a reason. Yes.
Well, it was, and uh, I'm grateful that we were able to share this time again together. I'd love to have you on again and talk maybe a little bit more about the mind. Anytime, anytime. Stuff. And, uh, anytime. This has been a, an honor, really, truly, and I know that everybody listening will appreciate it as well. Um, until next time, Coach, keep being great. Um, I'm grateful for you, and uh, you stay healthy and fit because you are worth it, and you'd make a big difference in people's lives. You, you need to be here much longer. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it, buddy. All right. Have a good one. Stay in touch. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. Will do. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And one more thing before you take off. Would you like to receive a short email from me one time a week on Fridays? Five to Thrive Fridays is a way for me to keep you expanding your health and fitness with five of the coolest things that I find interesting or ideas that I've been thinking about. Health and fitness books, trends, foods, recipes, supplements, anything to keep you feeling healthy and fit over the weekend and beyond. Visit stevejordan.com and click on the hashtag IamHealthyAndFit to leave your email address. And one more important note, if you found this podcast motivating, inspiring, or educational, please share with your family, your friends, coworkers, or anyone that you know who needs to improve their health or fitness. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or any other social media platform. Taking the initiative to share not only helps the people you share it with, but it will help you because the law of giving to get. See, when you give with generosity and without expectation, you will receive more for doing so. And this holds true when you want to be healthy and fit, my friends. This is another exercise that I prescribe to all of my clients. And those that have taken it on have undoubtedly seen the most results. So please, take a few more minutes of your time and do it now. Thank you again for listening. I am healthy and fit.